Welcome back to the pod. Mm-hmm. We hope you flies are staying warm in this freezing weather. Uh, this week we're buzzing in with a brand new episode featuring Craig Manason. Craig has an extensive background in communications, entertainment, and politics. He's worked with greats like John Stewart, Stephen Colbert, and served alongside Bill Clinton in the White House as the Assistant Press Secretary and Director of Television News. He's worked on many projects across networks you may probably know, like Comedy Central, MTV, HBO, ABC, and ESPN. It was truly our pleasure to have the opportunity to sit down and chat with Craig. We hope you enjoy the episode. Woo! Here we go. It's gone great so far. Yeah, thank you so much for being here. We're so excited to have you here on the fly. Yeah, totally. Um, so, yeah, I guess we can jump right into it. You've been a producer and worked with The Daily Show, Politically Incorrect. You've produced for Comedy Central, MTV, ABC, ESPN. So, tell me, uh, what is one of the favorite? Pro- what is one of your favorite projects that you've worked on? Well, I've been very lucky that much of what I've done has had a social relevance, starting all the way back when I was really young and working on Comic Relief, which went to benefit healthcare for the homeless, all the way up to the U.S. Comedy Arts Festival, which was an HBO show that was similar to Sundance, but celebrated comedy and new voices and had an undercurrent of freedom of speech. Um, I think the rally to restore sanity with John Stewart and Stephen Colbert uh, was among my favorite um, we did it here in Washington. We did it on the National Mall. Yeah. It was a reaction to Glenn Beck doing, at the time, a, a, what was a much smaller rally over the summer where he was essentially trying to prove that there was this large conservative movement that wasn't being heard. Yeah. And John Stewart and Stephen said, well, there's actually a much more uh, robust um community of people who believe in reasonableness yeah. uh, and we're going to show the world that there is and hundreds of thousands of people came out to the mall they brought their homemade signs they were incredibly smart funny uh, and the sense of community that came from that event mm-hmm. was uh, one of the most special things I've experienced on the entertainment side of my career but the idea of Entertainment, politics, even what we do in philanthropy, bringing people together, creating that sense of community is what I really love about uh, everything that I do. Yeah, that's incredible. That's super impressive. And I mean, entertainment and politics, it's something that you wouldn't typically think would go together. But, you know, just hearing from what you said, how did you, you graduated in 1992 and then you worked the World Cup in 94 and then a presidential campaign in 96. How did you merge entertainment and politics with that? And how did you get so quickly into the political scene? Well, there are so many similar aspects to campaigns and to entertainment, even the World Cup. You're organizing an event. You're, you're trying to draw people. You want them to come away with a good experience, whether that experience is uh, to reflect favorably on your candidate, uh, to have an experience that makes them a look at soccer, which wasn't as popular in the U.S. Mm-hmm. As, as it is now, as um, uh, something that they were really interested in, a sport that could grow. Entertainment, as I mentioned, when I uh, started out at HBO working on the show Comic Relief, people could laugh, but 
because it was for a cause and also caused them to think. So all of those, <clears throat> all of those um, environments have some of the same DNA and what you're trying to achieve. So there's a lot of crossover uh, in the industries. For me personally, having the chance to work on comic relief led to the others. Um, there were many people from Democrat politics who worked on comic relief to do the outreach to the homeless organizations mm -hmm. and do that kind of organizing who I met. Many of them went on to the World Cup. Yeah. Uh, I was fortunate enough to be able to, to, to join them there. Um, and then that led to the campaign as well. Yeah, so can you speak a little bit about how you got your foot in the door so early on? Uh, I remember you referenced one time re even rewriting a press release that it came out. Can you tell us a little bit about, a little about that? Sure, when I was in college, um, HBO brought Comic Relief to Miami to help uh, recovery from Hurricane Andrew, which at the time was the most devastating hurricane to hit uh, America. And same kind of show, comedians for a cause and raising money for, for the victims. And I had a chance to volunteer on that. Yeah. And then from there, volunteered on a number of other events. I went to the University of Miami in Miami tennis tournaments, horse race, car races, anything that had an organizing need. And I did essentially whatever was uh, was was asked of me and particularly had an interest in uh, communications and marketing. And what that means, at, at least at that level, was uh, I was often running around at the tennis tournaments refilling <laughs> Gatorade tubs or putting up banners or writing recaps of matches yeah. um, for to put out on the sports wire. Yeah. It was really fun. It gave me a tremendous amount of experience. Then I went to HBO uh, to work on Comic Relief, originally as a, as a production assistant. And then when I had the chance to work on the World Cup, I started out as a very junior marketing job. And I was not responsible for PR per se, but, and this is how long ago it was, uh, our PR firm would fax in press releases <laughs> to the office. And I started to read them and thought I, they weren't great and I could do them better. So uh, one day I went to my boss and I said, here's the press release that came in the fax machine, but I also took the liberty of rewriting it. I think this is better. She said, great, you're now in charge managing the PR firm. Congratulations. And so Incredible. I did that. Um, and really everywhere along the way, when I saw something that needed to be done, I would jump in and do it. And, and over time, uh, that allowed me to build a lot of different skills and a lot of uh, trust from the people that I worked for that I was, mm -hmm. you know, making their their lives uh, their goals and the goals of the organization uh, better and more achievable. Yeah. And I think that's the key for anyone young going into any job, um, proving your value uh, to the organization. Yeah. And so I think it's interesting that you talk about, you know, gaining trust. I mean, one of the first presidential campaigns you worked on what, four years after college was the 1996 election. And so can you tell me a little bit about the entertainment scene and like what drew you into it with like what advice you gave to Clinton and like what drew you into getting involved in politics and into that election? Well, I had the opportunity to do the campaign because I met so many people who were involved in Democratic politics in the reelection campaign. Yeah. And I think they thought I had a, a set of skills that was a little bit different from most people who were doing the campaign. And I, I particularly started out doing advance 
which, as your listeners may know, is when you go on the road and you organize events for the candidate or the president. Um, and having a TV and a large-scale event organizing background with the World Cup, that seemed a relevant skill for the campaign. It also was one of my favorite jobs, to be able to go across America and spend sometimes several days, sometimes a week, in communities that I probably otherwise would never have had a chance to do and really learn what's on the minds of voters, how communities are responding to things and how they're making the choice in that election yeah. was such an education. So I was really fortunate to do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and what made you wanna work uh, for the Clinton administration or for the Clinton campaign? What ideas or what made you so drawn to work or to jump from entertainment to politics and kind of merge the two together? Well, I always had an interest even when I was in college and still trying to decide what I wanted to pursue, I was interested in politics and news. I was interested in entertainment and I was interested in sports organizing. Uh, obviously not playing professional sports, but organizing <laughs> professional sports. Uh, all for sort of the same reason. I used to look at some of these factors in society. And, and yeah. for example, in television, I used to be amazed that someone could sit down and create a character that the audience found uh, community with or interesting enough that they would come back week after week and make that character part of their lives. By the same token, sports, you create an identity with your your favorite teams and the idea that people organize around that that becomes part of their life is really interesting. And for politics as well, someone who is choosing to put themselves out there to lead has to build this community in a way that um, makes it, gives them the ability to govern and gives the people that are supporting them the sense that they're really on their side. So they all had some aspect of the same thing that I was drawn to, even though at a very young age, I couldn't necessarily put my finger on what that was, other than I knew there was something that connected all of them. And yeah. And you speak a little bit about that entertainment alignment. I mean, you had, I guess, one of the first, like, modern, relatively modern TV-style presidents who went across the late-night shows, who was on MTV. Mm -hmm. You know, he's playing the saxophone. One of his defining debate moments was when, um, was when Clinton um, asked, uh, back in 92, one of his defining debate moments was when a lady asked him how the personal debt, how the debt personally affected him, and Bush gave a very cold answer, but Clinton was, you know, to the point, he was out there. So what was a part of that, very personable, so what was a part of that entertainment style strategy in the 96 campaign? Well, it was really his own personality. And that's one reason I was drawn to working for him in the campaign um, in what we do all the way through now, what we do with the Clinton Foundation, the Clinton Global Initiative. Yeah. He, the campaign slogan, a campaign slogan in 1992 was putting people first. And that was so much more than a position part of slogan is authentically how President Clinton felt. Uh, Growing up, he talks so much about the power of storytelling and understanding somebody else's story. And you really can't understand them if you don't understand their story, where they're coming from, why they're motivated in certain things, what their hopes and fears are. And he's always said through his career, our goal should be to help other people live their best life story. And so that Mm -hmm. was a, a draw to me beyond the success and what I thought and meant for the country. So when you translate that to the campaign or to governing, 
it's pretty natural that you would look to entertainment or say how entertainment factors into that because you want to reach people everywhere and you want to make sure that they understand that you really care about them and that their stories are important. Yeah. Sometimes that's lost in the news. The news is the news for a reason. It, it's topical. It's immediate. Uh, they do and journalists do an incredible job of, of bringing that and framing questions. But it's also not always where people are getting their information or perspective. Yeah. So as a strategy, if you can branch out to other places in a way that people want to consume, it comes back to characters you want to bring into your lives and you have a better chance of, of success. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. And like taking into consideration even our generation now, the entertainment industry plays a huge role in the media that we consume. Yeah. And I just, in general, like want to hear from you, why do you think entertainment and comedy play such a big role in politics and kind of framing these characters and framing the people that like run our government, I guess? I think you have to look back at the whole course of history. Yeah. One thing we talked about in our discussion group is the idea that, as Mel Brooks famously said, comedy is the conscience of the people. And as Gary Trudeau, who uh, wrote writes Doonesbury, uh, among other things, he has this line that I love about how even uh, uh, throughout medieval times, court jesters would poke fun at the people who hired them, the, the, the yeah. princes and the royalty, they wouldn't randomly run through the countryside criticizing the serfs. The idea that comedy has always been, and satire particularly, as a way to hold uh, power accountable because of the honesty of comedy. For comedy to really work, audiences recognizing a, a, a truth there is critical. And so it becomes an, such an effective way to hold institutions and, and people accountable. And that's why it's always been largely important. Also, it's free of the constraints of news. It can be yeah. more <laughs> opinion. It, it's more like reading the opinion pages than reading the front pages. Yeah. Uh, and that makes it a powerful tool, too. And so that's interesting. Um, you also helped work with um, Stephen Colbert with the White House Correspondents Association dinner. So can you tell us a little bit about what that experience was like? I mean, that fits the role because Colbert was given it during a time Bush was president. I'm blanking on the year, but um, yeah, it, I think that was a, another important moment in that history. It was it was 2006, yeah. and Stephen was incredible, and the writers were incredible and brave. Mm -hmm. You know, to if you if you haven't been to the correspondence dinner, the the comedian the performer is sitting just a few feet from the president, yeah. and for anybody that is an intimidating room. It's also a room as a comic that is not prone to laugh. Because uh, you know they're they're you know they're journalists. Sometimes they're entertaining uh, people from the administration across the table. Or I should say, it's not that they're not inclined to laugh. They are not necessarily inclined to laugh at the president because unless the president is making fun of themselves, yeah. just out of basic decorum and and fairness. But so Stephen was very brave to be so pointed in his criticism yeah. about the administration and the Iraq War. And that's something that um, we hadn't seen very often in that setting. Um, when I was in the room and it was happening, I thought maybe that is the last thing I would ever do work-wise because it was <laughs> not going over as well in the room. But it was also one of the first times we saw the power of the internet and what was happening outside the room. And it became, you know, sort of tried to say now, but a viral sensation yeah. um, and had this resonance far beyond the room. It really changed, at least for a time, the dynamics of that of that dinner. Yeah, yeah definitely. 
And um, just out of curiosity, what made you want to uh, found your own media company and how how did your previous experience play into what made you inspired to start it? Mostly because, because as I was discussing a few minutes ago, I had these interests in so many different areas and <laughs> I never lost that interest in those areas. So I thought, well, no, nobody's going to hire me to do all of those things <laughs> unless I start a business where I can do all of those things. Yeah. And so um, that's part of it. Um, there's an entrepreneurial side that is exciting and the ability to take on, on different things. And so now whether it's representing Wikipedia or, or helping Bloomberg with their health work or the U.S. Soccer Foundation, um, really grateful that we get to help all of these organizations for making a different in the world, difference in the world, and particularly the Clinton Foundation and, and the Clinton Global Initiative. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think one interesting thing you had when we discussed one thing you, you told me that I carried with me was you spoke about a book about architecture and how that taught mm -hmm. you lessons about management and communications. Can you speak a little bit more sure. about that? How that plays into your philosophy? Well, I love architecture, and and my wife bought me a book called 101 Things I Learned in Architecture School. Yeah. And when I started reading it, I realized there were so many creative lessons in that book that are applicable to management, particularly communications, design, and theory. And it was a reminder to me to say, you, there's not just one way to do something. You can learn from different disciplines. That's one of the fun things about having the business, this cross-pollination that refreshes ideas and approaches. In particular, for that book, um, the idea of user design, yeah. you know, design a space for how people will really use it, not how you think they should use it. Mm -hmm. That's important. Uh, be confident in your drawing. Um, be confident in making sure, in, in the case of that book, um, these are things that are basic to any architect, but I, you know, obviously because I'm reading a book yeah. called 101 <laughs> Things I'm Learning in Architecture School, I didn't know. But then you finish the line all the way through the end of the line. You don't try to stop it there because it shows the thought continues, you have confidence in where you're going with this line, yeah. um, and that you really have thought about what you're doing and you know that's where you wanna go. And those are all good management lessons. They're, they're, frankly, they're good for any industry you go into to have the, the confidence and thoughtfulness to design it in a way that'll work. Um, so that's that's what I got out of that oh, book. That's, super that's interesting. so interesting. Yeah. Yeah. But um, I'm not an architect now. I'm <laughs> it, so. And I can yeah. barely draw. But. Yeah. <laughs> I think that, uh, that's really interesting um, because I, I also know you also worked in the White House for a period of time. Um, I believe you were the assistant press secretary and director of, of television news. Yeah. Which in the what late '90s, early 2000s, that's a pretty that's a pretty crucial role for you know messaging and getting the president's message out there, especially as you know, Gore was also running for his election at that time. So can you tell me a little bit about what that role was like and what are some of the goals you had in that role? Sure. And you have to, it's very long time ago. It was pre-social media, believe it or not. <laughs> um, and uh, people were still watching TV. And TV, TV news, I, I say that in some way just, but TV news still draws millions of people to cable and network news and still is incredibly influential. But at the time... Um, it was essentially, particularly cable news, was the Twitter or the Facebook of the day in that you didn't have to wait for the next morning for the paper to come out. Things that were happening were almost reported in real time throughout the day. So it changed our strategy. And um, we used to approach it to say, okay, 
now we're dealing with 24-hour news coverage. Mm -hmm. So let's think like a programmer. Let's think as if we need to populate that space all the time because they need yeah. content and they need programming. And so that means being uh, packaging our administration initiatives for better consumption on TV, putting more representatives out there to talk about the issues. Yeah. Uh, as, as my boss, Joe Lockhart, used to say, on those shows, if we're debating our issues, the debate's okay. If we're debating the things we want to debate, we're winning. If we're debating what someone else wants to debate, we're not winning. <laughs> so the more we can engineer the debate about the things that we want to talk about, the better off we would be. And we thought our policies were obviously better for the American people. So it was exciting. It was like any White House in that um, if you enjoy uh, anything popping up at any time that you have to deal with and, and you get satisfaction from doing that, they're fun jobs. If you don't like that, they're not that fun, uh, but they're exciting. And yeah. it was a really, I was incredibly grateful to have the experience. Yeah. I got to work with some of the most thoughtful, smart people in the world, uh, both as my bosses, colleagues, but also all the experts you get to deal with. And it was incredibly satisfying to see the result of our work every day on the news. And yeah, and you were, and you were, um, and you were, you were um, serving during a time where, you know, Clinton was under immense scrutiny because of the yes. new style of Republicans that were, you had the Gingrich era, um, where there was this sort of feisty, you know, hit them at everything sort of approach so i guess like how did that what, what how did that play into um you know the media strategy and you know um, getting the, the message the clinton message out there well the media strategy not surprisingly starts with do you have substance do you have something to say yeah. it's not enough to say we hope to do x you have to prove that you're doing it or have done it and very fortunately he the President Clinton-led administration with uh, that really walked the walk. So we started from a very good place. Then it comes down to being aggressive and smart. What are all the different ways that you can convey to the American people that the president is working every day on their behalf? Yeah. So that was the strategy, not take things for granted and let them come to you, be aggressive, get out there, define the debate, yeah. find new ways and new places to do it. We started doing things with comedy shows we worked with the west wing and the entertainment side as i mentioned we tried to sort of program with the news networks um and be active you know that meant yeah. in president clinton's case he was traveling a lot going to communities bringing the story to them highlighting them and it all goes back to his original philosophy that it's about the people and if you can prove that in every way you're executing your strategy you're going to be better off so that's what we tried yeah. to do yeah. I guess, so, yeah. So, like, we have a couple of more minutes left. We like to do something called a lightning round and yeah. ask you some questions. Uh, so, you've clearly worked across very many different industries, the entertainment industry and the White House. You have your own company. Um, just out of curiosity, out of all the people that you've happened to meet, do you have a favorite celebrity, a favorite politician, or somebody very influential that you've come across? Oh God! I, I, you know, I've I've been fortunate to work and be around so many President Clinton and everybody, Joe Locker and everybody who uh, I, I worked for and with were really defining in my life, uh, and I'm very grateful to them. And, and 
you know, if as you've talked to other people in politics, it's uh, you really hope that you work for people that you also believe in. It's not any like any job or any position may not always be true. In my case, it was very true, and I was I was very fortunate. Um, but also the brilliant comics, John Stewart, Stephen Colbert, Trevor Noah, um, seeing how they and their colleagues and the writers put a different perspective on the day's news um, and bringing their own experience to it and translating it in a way to help make sense of the world is uh, a brilliance that I admired every single day yeah. uh, in watching them. So it's lucky to see the creators. I, I get excited by the creators. It's yeah. not yeah. so much the stars. It's <laughs> who's putting those words on paper, who right. is. Yeah. And that's one of the reasons I've always uh, loved comedy. You know, there's it, it, particularly if if you're brave enough to do stand up, it can be the loneliest place uh, <laughs> in entertainment because it's just you and your words on a stage trying to get the audience with you. There's no yeah. cameras, directors, just that. And it, it's it's a remarkable skill. So yeah. I've been I've been very fortunate. And so for the next question, um, speaking about the intersection of politics and comedy. Um, during the uh, during the Clinton Bush transition, there is a reported story that a lot of the W keys went missing um, from a lot of the computers. Is that true? <laughs> is that true? Yes, it's true. Um, there were a number of I would call them senior pranks, senior itis kind of pranks that that happened. Nothing particularly destructive, yeah. but. Um, I think anyone there would argue that those computers were so old that maybe they needed new keys. Keys anyway. <laughs> it also wasn't. It, it also was I mean, that it, it were. I think there were maybe a couple keys that yeah. went missing, and then yeah. Uh, yeah. The G and the B as well. What's that? <laughs> the G and the B as well. Uh, I, I, I don't. I never. I never heard. I never heard yeah. that. I, I did not do it, but I, I, I am aware that some keys went went missing. But, um, That's too funny. Um, so. As, you know, as somebody who worked a lot behind the scenes, you know, running around super busy as a producer, what was your favorite behind the scenes snack? Something you always had to have by you. Oh, behind the scenes snack. That is a that is a good question. <laughs> um, I know the snacks that I hope weren't there because I would have a hundred of them, like <laughs> chocolate chip cookies. So <laughs> we're just talking about we were just Yeah. Talking about. So it's 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 tempting to 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 snack, yeah, yeah. I I I, I love and hate having chocolate chip cookies around. And so, and, and so you spent um, significant time working alongside the Clintons. So I'm pretty sure you've been around for some of the wildest conspiracy theories. Mm -hmm. What is one of your favorite um, Clinton conspiracy theories? Well, I there. There were a lot. I, don't, I wouldn't say any of them are my favorite yeah. because no, they no. sadly were really tragic in the sense that disinformation, misinformation is such a uh, a factor in society. And, and unfortunately, there, there are people who believe a lot of um, things and, and smart people and good people. And um, it's just the way misinformation is deliberately presented. So yeah. and some of those had tragic consequences for people. Yeah. Uh, I'll give you a personal one that is on the lighter side is uh, my wife and I had a 
rescue, a little rescue pit bull named Madre <laughs> that I made a comment about in an email that ultimately got distributed when WikiLeaks came out and it caused uh, a minor conspiracy theory about who was this Madre. Oh, and there were, there were press reports that speculated it was a code name the CNN had for a source. It was what other what we were calling Secretary Clinton at that point. Oh it was a really crazy God. theory. And to the point that reporters would call me and say, what is with this Madre? And I said, what's with this Madre? It's, it is our dog. And I was making a joke <laughs> in an email. And it, it's been written about in academic studies and, and books and things. So, um, But that was just a very small personal example of a of a of something that was really really a horrible phenomena that disinformation was out there uh with with tragic consequences right here in dc there was a conspiracy theory that the clinton foundation and and secretary clinton were responsible for a child trafficking ring yeah. at a pizza place and yeah. it was obviously completely fictional completely made up but it caused a, a, a man i believe he's from north carolina to come with an assault rifle to find the pizza place and rescue the the students. So he, Absolutely. you know, it's crazy. Wow. Yeah. Um. Okay. This one is probably one of our tougher questions. Um. You know, if you had to choose any ice cream flavor, what was what would be your favorite? Oh, this is the easiest question you've asked me. <laughs> <laughs> I grew up outside of Boston, and our local ice cream shop had a flavor called Green Monster, which was named after the uh, the wall at Fenway Park. Oh, wow. And it is delicious. So oh, that's hey, Shout out to Bedford is? Farms. Yeah. <laughs> it's a mix It's a mix of, of different flavors. There's chocolate chips in there. There's mint ice cream. I happen to love coffee ice cream, but this particular <laughs> ice cream is phenomenal. Uh, that's incredible. I think that's all the time we have for today. Yes. Thank you so much for joining the show. Yes. Thank you so much for your time. We had a wonderful time asking you questions. Thank, thank you. you for your interest and thank yeah. you for having me. Enjoy the rest of the semester. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to The Fly. You can find us on social media at The Fly Georgetown. If you enjoyed our conversation, make sure to subscribe to The Fly and leave a five-star rating on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or SoundCloud. Our researchers are Kenneth Jackson, Julian Zeitlinger, Abigail Asadi, and Chase Dobson. Our communications team is Andrea Smith, Austin Culpepper, Darius Wagner, and Sarah Sverdlov. Our production team is Will Hayes and David Grice. Original theme music is composed by Aidan Eng and Bella Carlucci. And I'm Fiona Gallagher, Managing Director of the Pod. The Fly is brought to you by the Georgetown University Institute of Politics and Public Service and is made possible by the McCourt School of Public Policy. Thanks so much for listening and fly with you soon. <laughs>